take every work experience, I would say, in stride. You know, perhaps you're doing something that you're not necessarily like 100% happy with, but take it as experience, especially when you when you're starting out. Don't don't be so self-critical of being like, oh, you know, this this is not exactly what I want to be doing, or this is not fulfilling my creative vision. It's like you have time for that. Like what, what you're trying to do is build a career, and that takes time. You're not going to be like making feature documentaries right out of the gate. Okay, what's up, y'all? Today we got Tamor Soban. He's a good friend of mine in Bangkok, amazing filmmaker, great cinematographer, has seen his work in New York Times, Al Jazeera, MTV, and now he's working for a human rights organization called Fortify Rights. So, Tamor, welcome to Beyond the News. Nice one. Danny, always a pleasure to talk to you. Cool, man. So, um, give us a bit of a background of like how you got into the film world and um, your path into this industry. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I started in, um, in documentary production very much on the path. You know, I, I've always wanted to, to make uh, narrative films, actually. So I was very much um, thinking about you know, feature films. I used to make short films. Um, and uh, during, during that path, like, I really got into the, the technical aspects of filmmaking, you know, like... Um, I was really enamored by old film cameras and like 16 millimeter. Um, one, one of the most important uh, parts of, of my training, I think, was uh, was taking a course at NYU, where we did, uh, it, was a, it was a summer course, and it was called Sight and Sound. And it's basically, it's, it's sort of like you, you have a week to plan a short film, shoot it, and cut it. And we were shooting on 16 millimeter film and we're editing on Steenback, which is like the sort of like the moviola we call them. So we're so actually what, what, what is that for people who don't know? We're, we, we take, we're shooting on film and you're actually like cutting the film, splicing together shots and then eventually you have a reel. And um, so it's like, it's really like editing, but like bare bones, you know. And I thought that was a really good lesson in, in editing. And it really like made me interested in this, in the creative act of, you know, taking two shots together and putting it together and it creates something new. The other thing about cutting with like Steenbeck is that, you know, like a cut is a cut. Like when you have actual film reels and you're taking scissors and cutting it, you don't have the room to just sort of be like, all right, I'm going to like control Z, you know, like, oh, you're just going to undo that. You just have to plan it. And like, that's the kind of thing. That's why I mentioned this, this, this course, because it's like it's really been something where I, that I've brought into the documentary world, where it's like you got to you have to think about what you're shooting. You have to think about how your your cut is going to look. Um, so you're not just, you know, you're not just fixing things in post or like inventing your film after shooting it. It's like think cinematically, think strategic, strategically about your work. It's, it's that kind of stuff that I really brought from that. So after that was actually like, so I started with 16 millimeter film and steam bag, and then I went into digital. Um, and then I started, you know, like really experimenting with, uh, with DV cameras at the time. We were still in like tape. Baby. <laughs> yeah, man, exactly. I used to miss, I still have like my, you know, some tapes scattered around, uh, around the house and they look really, they look really like something from another dimension now. Like sort of, you know, we used to like actually put the tapes in, have to log, like it, all of that stuff. It's just become so much quicker nowadays. Um, 
but there's something about that's like the old style of like really taking your time and you know logging your footage properly and stuff like that where that I, I want you know I'm, I'm happy that I went through that so that now I'm in the digital world and I feel like I'm a bit more efficient but um, yeah I mean it was definitely yeah after university um, worked in a equipment room for a bit at the New York Film Academy so I kind of like was checking out equipment checking out film cameras to students um, did that for a year and realized like I really wanted to have some like in the world experience you know, do my own work um, that brought me to one of my first gigs in like documentary film and human rights work actually which was um, working for this uh, human rights NGO called Peace Brigades International so we went to to Colombia they do they do protective accompaniment of human rights defenders in Colombia which means like there's people who are at risk for the work that they're doing with uh, you know like people land rights activists for instance so they send somebody like a law student or somebody foreign basically to accompany them on their missions and that just the act of having somebody with these human rights defenders means they're protected so we did like a documentary about their work in Colombia and uh, so I spent a month shooting human rights defenders there and I really realized like like a that I'm really interested in in the work and also that it's that it's needed you know in, in the human rights movement unfortunately a lot of people a lot of people don't read these reports right and uh, if you have some visual something uh, that's told with a cinematic kind of through through that kind of language more people are going to watch it and it's it has a, a, a bigger impact um, so doing that then I, I started really launching myself into that kind of news and um, news human rights angle with, with my filmmaking uh, Sure. So, um, I mean, you talk about uh, the human rights aspect of it. So, I mean, why don't you talk a bit about where that's led you to now and fortify rights and kind of like yeah. a mix of things. There's also like even the, the evolution of filmmaking, how we're talking about from 60 millimeter to yeah. digital, where are we going now and some of the projects you're working on there? Yeah, totally, man. Um, so yeah, so first projects I shot like this one here, which was, uh, the, the Columbia one was on, you know, it was on DV tape. Um, I then went, uh, got one, one of my first cameras that I still have today that has seen through like years and years of my project is the Panasonic HVX 200, which is a workhorse of P2 camera. And I love it. I, th I still think the images it spits out are beautiful. They are, you know, and like, it's it's a beautiful piece of equipment because it's just it's all contained. This is before the, um, you know, the SLR, DSLR revolution. You know, back then it was like, you know, a photographer's camera, and then you've got like the the actual, you know, film and news cameras. Um, and I never felt the need really. To go over to the SLRs because I always had these cameras. So I took, um, I basically started uh, freelancing in Bangladesh a lot. I was doing some uh, some long form documentary. So long form meaning like like twenty two minute kind of pieces for TV. Um, we did one for for actually for BBC Bangla, which was uh, uh, it's called A Day in Dhaka, and we followed four young people. And uh, you know, and how they, they deal with living in 
what was then the, the world's second most unlivable city. So we're, right now we're talking about, you know, 2006, 2007. Um, we, I did that documentary. I did another, another piece for um, a forestry NGO. And what they were doing is, you know, they were protecting the forests. And one piece of, the, of this forestry documentary was about the Rohingya refugee camps. So, and this was in, this was in 2008. Wow. Now, yeah. in 2008, this was the first time I saw, I, I went there to Cox's Bazaar. I went to Hutupalong refugee camp. Wow. And at, up until then, I didn't actually know who the Rohingya, Rohingya were. The only reason I was introduced to them was because I had to shoot this project. And the problem was uh, all the forests around the, the refugee camps, they were rapidly degrading because, you know, they, the, all, the only thing they had for their livelihood at the time was uh, logging. So they would go into the forest and chop the, the trees. And, um, you know, I was just, I was shocked to hear their stories in 2008. I was thinking, you know, how is it possible nobody really knows that this is going on, that the Burmese government has for decades been denying these people their basic rights, even though they were clearly from Myanmar. There was nobody, even at the time, it was very clear that these people are Burmese and they're an ethnic group of Burma and they, are, they're, they have been trapped in these camps. So I'll, I've always, it, it really shocked me at the time. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, this is a story that I really would like to get deeper involvement in. Um, when, you, when you say that really shocked you, and what, what shocked you, the story or being there and seeing the camps and what, what were the camps like there in 2008? Because, you know, yeah, before, before going there myself, I mean, it was quite shocking, like really being there and seeing these things. So. Yeah, maybe talk. Yeah, for sure. It was. Um, I, I was shocked at the level. You know, in Bangladesh we have a lot of poverty, but I was. I, I was very shocked at the level of poverty that I, I saw there. I would say that at the time, you know, something. It, it, it was a lot, a lot sort of more sparse. So you didn't have the, the kind of crammed feeling that that we have now going to see the camps after two thousand seventeen when you know the the largest mass migration happened before then in 2008 really it just felt sort of like um like a dusty kind of sparse area where you had huts but you had fields in between um and uh it was just you know like tremendous poverty um and you know you could you could feel like the thing that shocked me most going back there after a 10 year, basically I went there in 2008, then afterwards it was 2017 when I went right after the crisis broke out. And it was just, it, it was insane. You know, the whole area has gone from becoming this sort of like sparse kind of sh shanty town to something that, re I mean, it feels like the refugee equivalent of like Manhattan where you're just like, everybody's crammed together. And it simply wasn't like that when I saw it in 2008. Um, it, yeah, it was, it's definitely, I, 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 could not, I could not believe that it took, you know, it took 10 years, I think, for, for also the international community to really understand the, 
what the Burmese government has been doing, especially because like the violence that broke out was was insane in in 2017. But the actual policies and everything, they were in place even in 2008. They were in place even before then. You know, this policy of excluding these people entirely from their rights to citizenship, and it's just shocking that you know like how people can just keep know about it and yet do nothing about it you know and uh that's what i felt in 2008 when i i interviewed a guy and he was uh, you know he was talking about how even within the with the bangladeshi authorities right that they they sort of they weren't being treated well by anybody on any side that they felt like they were completely stranded which which they were they i mean um and the only the only way they could make money really their only livelihood was tree felling or like just like cutting trees and that's selling the wood for basically nothing. So you would see basically in 2008, like loads just in the morning, a huge group of people going out into the forest um, and then coming back, just carrying, you know, these like ch chunks of wood and then they would go and they would sell it. And that's basically, that's it. You just see this traffic going in and out. Now those forests, obviously, they don't exist anymore because they've been completely cleared to fit a million people. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's staggering, the size of it. I mean, when you see the drone footage, it's just... Yeah, like, so, like, so talk, talk about that. I mean, it's like a huge, yeah. huge camp. It's enormous, man. It's absolutely like a city. It's, um, you know, we've got... There's so many different, different camps as well. There's different networks of camps there's there's a whole structure of how these these camps are organized and managed by the you know it's the bangladesh um, rohingya repatriation uh commission uh and like the triple rc they call it and it's like it's just incredible you know on, on the one hand you know i think props needs to be given for sure for to to the bangladesh government for actually welcoming and managing the situation when it was at, at the peak of its crisis. You know, we, we, were, we were hearing reports of like, you know, people, the, the Navy at the border when, all, when the influx was coming in, you know, they ordered the boats to not take money from the, the refugees that were coming in. A lot of them were not gonna take the money themselves out of their, you know, sure humanity. But then it became an actual, like, a government kind of mandated thing where it's like no no we need to help these people this is a crisis that, I didn't know which that, is, yeah. yeah it's, it's like um so we got a few interviews with like with boat we, I, when i went down there and spoke to some um some boatmen um they were also like and i and i and we saw the few arm uh, army officials there and i chatted briefly with them and it's like you know at, when, when you're put face to face with this kind of tragedy you know i think like sometimes the it's like humanity, humanity shines. You know, like you see, you see how people really do care for each other, and this is how how it happens. This is there, like from both ends, from the Rohingya and, and the Bangladeshi. And we we saw this sort of like it, it was like a, a silver lining, being like, you know, we will humanity will prevail. You've gone through this really devastating situation, but we have to, we have to. We have to overcome this together, and it was it was a very like very emotional moment for me to see that. So what happened was um, to do, basically backtrack a bit. When um, so I was working for Forty Five Rights at the time, 
Um, a lot of my work at Fortify Rights is you know, to develop their multimedia content. We do short videos. We do you know, like character profiles, mainly for social media. And um, we try to, you know, we try to show stories that perhaps would might not be picked up by you know large networks. Um, sometimes we do sort of breaking news. We get a lot of uh, leaked videos and uh, like citizen journalists, uh, both in Rakhine and in, in in the camps in Myanmar and in Bangladesh. And like uh, we actually one of our one of the first videos I worked on it was. Um, in northern Shan state, and it was uh, we got leaked video of Myanmar army people beating ethnic um, civilians, and uh, so you know, this is what happens. I get a, a chunk of cell phone video from an activist sent to me in WhatsApp. Yeah, I take it, I I cut it, we put some text over it, kind of follow following a bit like this this trend you know that we're seeing in online news where. It, Sort of like AG Plus does does a lot of that work. Snappy, to the point, very short. Took that video and it it blew up. You know, it was one of our most viral videos. Um, and so I was doing that kind of work. Um, the you, especially with the Rohingya, I was getting a lot of like short the WhatsApp videos. When the crisis broke, I mean, I rest, I remember the day when it. Basically, it was starting 25th of August 2017, and like we were getting these news updates. And I mean, right there, and already we were calling it genocide. A lot of people were calling it genocide even before then, you know. Um, even from like I think it was 2012, there was an uptake in violence, and then 2016, there was another uptake in violence in Rakhine State. You know, when it hit its peak in 2017, I was just like, this. If this isn't genocide, if seeing 700,000 people escape their homeland, then like what is it? It's, it's, it's absurd. Um, so we, we were hearing news, we we're getting reports of uh, everybody fleeing Myanmar. Um, and I knew that you know we, had, we, should, we should go there and do some original reporting. Um, the team totally agreed. They're planning trips anyway to, you know, to get really the human rights research. Um, so we we took we went straight to the camps and I was going to do an initial sort of like uh, a trip a shooting trip to, to create a short film. Um, so we land up by that by this time it was like early September. People were still trickling in. So the first day you know like we go down there take I mean to get to the the real you get to get Cox's Bazaar and to to get this an island called uh, Shapuri Deep. That that island, which is right on the Naf River, where most of the Rohingya were coming, you know, you have to take. I'm sure, like every journalist has done, done it, who's, who's covered it. It's like you take the car, you drive down, then you have to get get off. Like we left at 5:30 in the morning, you know, and, and uh, then you know you have to walk yeah. for a large stretch, and then you take a boat, then you take a tuk tuk, and then you keep going down further, 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 until you get to this point, and. Uh, Sure enough, we get there and we're on a pier, and in the distance, just you could see like it was just tiny. A string of people were walking by. There's about fifty or sixty, and um, it was just it was it was crazy. Like we we saw them walking over. Then by the time they got closer to the shore, uh, we went and walked with them, 
And um, that was it was very emotional um, day of filming. Interviewed a few, three or four of the freshly arrived refugees. And, and also, and, like, to talk a bit about this because you know, I mean, if you look at the images for people who are just listening and can't see, I mean, people are just carrying with all their belongings, just yeah. on their on, in a one bag and, on their head. Yeah, that's it. Right. Kids, kids who are walking there alone. Yeah, I mean. That's with just nothing, with like a, a plastic box on their head. Some, some with like just, you know, uh, basically a stick with two plastic bags. You know, the morning we walked there, there was um, a makeshift sort of like a, it was like a, no, I don't know, it was like a floating vessel um, that, was, that was used that morning. And I mean, it's just it's just insane because they they just took some bottles, they just built it themselves. You could see it. This is tarpaulin sheet, and they floated over across the river. Like any way they could, they came over. You know, walking without without food. I mean, it's just it's absurd. Um, so yeah, they're really like walking with nothing. Um, they still really wanted to talk to us, which I found also really interesting. Um, that they were like when. You know, imagine they they survived this huge journey, and when they saw somebody with a camera, like they they felt the need to to explain what they were what they were escaping. And you know, there's a lot of people who are you know, especially like the sort of the genocide deniers and everybody. They're they're saying, oh, you know, well, they've been trained to say a certain story. When you actually hear them talk after they've gone through this, uh, there's no way you can deny that, that kind of, like it, it, it's not scripted because you feel that emotion. You see, you see, you, you sense when somebody's is telling you the truth. And I think that's a lot of, I think visual journalists are very well placed to do that because we've, we've interviewed, you know, we, we do that for a living. We talk to a lot of people, we film them, we, we sent, we had a sense. It's sort of like, like and it's, it's helped me in, in, in a lot of shoots. It's like this understanding of, an emotional reality. You know when you're you're prying too much, or you're asking the like too invasive questions, and you get a sense of how to manage an interview, or how you know what kind. And like especially with them, like I felt there was that like that was the need for for people to document it visually is just so that they get a sense of the tone of how they were feeling when they said it that otherwise would be missed if it was a text story or even a still photo, you know, like, like the, the still photo, it's excellent at capturing emotion too, but there's something very, you know, bare bones when you're actually hearing and seeing, and that's where the language of like motion picture is, is essential for human rights documentation. Cause like it, nothing compares to it in my opinion. Um, we were like, yeah. And so we, we filmed there for four, for five days, I was going in. We after that initial trip, seeing them walk in, we kind of documented how people were adapting to life in the camps. Which that and that was the that's what I really felt like, just how the, the scale of the crisis. Because you know, having seen it empty in two thousand eight, I'm like, yo, this is completely. This is a different thing altogether. It's changed the entire landscape. The that entire region. Um, like Ukiah district is forever changed because 
it's just imagine like yeah, the, sure. one of the world's largest refugee camps. Um, so one really interesting thing also that we found during this whole process was there were Rohingya carrying cell phones throughout this trip. So there was like they they actually they've documented the entire exodus, and this footage is of of tremendous value like you know for in terms of like on, in on a legal perspective but it's also like really really powerful for you know like for viewers to see because this is really like harrowing stuff there um so that led us to think about you know trying to trying to get in touch with the people that actually film both in both their lives in rakhine but and and the the travel into Bangladesh. So the so we we made a short film um, from from that that first trip. Then I returned um, like in 2018 to do this um, to do another film where we were, it was basically about about Rohingya cell phones. Um, so I went went in there and uh, you know we we got in touch with people that were were documenting their lives in Rakhine State, people who had documented abuses, people who had, you know, intentionally kind of hid while Burmese authorities went and murdered people. And then these, I mean, I call them citizen journalists, they were just, right, Rohingya wanted to document what was happening to them. You know, he went, they went in and, you know, filmed places that, like, fresh blood marks, some um, terrifying really uh, difficult images, you know, were submitted to us, like uh, of children, dead, dead bodies floating in, in the river, children uh, lying in the, in the ground. Some of the worst things I've ever seen in my life, right? So, uh, yeah, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Seeing it's, that continuous on a daily basis? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really tough, especially when you're trying to make it, you know, when, you, when you're cutting an e- editing a documentary, right, and you're seeing these images over and over again, and you're trying to make something that's, you know, impactful. Yeah, I mean, I saw them hundreds of times, these images, and it's hard to, to deal with. I tried to t- kind of take a, like, a, you know, a sort of, like, I say zen, like, you, you sort of, you have to disassociate yourself from the image, and, like, you enter this kind of mental state where, you're seeing, like I do this often with even with my timelines, like so that you're seeing it for the first time every time. You know, it's sort of like you do a mental wipe so that you're trying to get into the mindset of somebody who's seeing your cut for the first time. And like, and you have to constantly do this. So we're very good at that. I think video editors are very good at that. It's sort of like, say, okay, well, let me just try and reset my brain and like watch this fresh. Um, it's particularly hard with the, so with the, with the, Images of violence, yeah. I mean, there's, there's obviously like a lot of, <laughs> like trauma, and post-traumatic stress that a lot of journalists, uh, like I'm sure we've both gone through that. Like it's it's a it's a very serious thing, and it happens. But like the the sort of having something completed that goes out and that has the impact of kind of changing people's perspective. Sometimes that's that that also keeps you driven to complete the project um we were very uh, it, 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 you know with this particular film you know eventually it got uh 
got picked up at uh, it was on New York Times Up Docs. Um, we had we had a lot of people watch it um, and some good reactions, strong reactions from from people who have you know public figures who have who had some weight in like changing how like public discourse around this. So that was good. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the process of making it was very, yeah, I mean, it was very harrowing. The first minute basically of that film is just images of like pretty much like the, the most gruesome images. And in fact, there was like, there was something from the New York Times editorial sense as well though, that I found interesting was like, you know, that's that, that impact right there is sort of, that's what's going to keep people really glued because they they've never seen that that level they they don't understand the rohingya crisis they will remember it once they've seen that kind of image and so we started it that way and then we went into the characters and eventually we it was structured around one um is a rohingya refugee who runs a cell phone repair shop and he's sort of he's seen so much of this footage because it's all carried on his phones and he sort of he's, he stores some of it that he thinks is, is going to have wow. like evidentiary value. So we we sort of filmed a section around him, and then yeah, sure. we followed we followed the phones and just filming the phones. So that one um, that one did I say did well, but like I mean yeah, it was it was harrowing. It was definitely harrowing. I mean I think you've had also had that experience as well going to the camps of like really feeling feeling it when uh, when you realize the impact of like. Uh, the, the stories you're hearing and the anguish you see, it's um, like you have to have a sort of a, a type of personality to deal with that. Like you have to be a bit stoic, a bit like being able to contain yourself and then contain your emotions and then sort of like you put them away mm. in a corner, right? You say like, I need to do that so that I can continue my work. Otherwise, if you, I mean, I think the, one of the worst things, in fact, is um, is seeing, you know, like I don't see aid organizations or journalists or video, videographers, film photographers, like we 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 should not, you know, be crying or be, you know, in the field. We should not express that emotion, you know, because in many ways it's like it's it's not about us, right? And and the people are going through something. Yeah. Something worse, you know, even worse, a magnitude worse. Oh yeah, exactly. So we, so, it's out of respect. Yeah, sure. We yeah. should we should be professional and you know get the job done as best as we can and kind of not not worry so much about your own emotions as as a filmmaker or a photographer because what you're doing documenting that you know that's that's what you're there to do. You know? like, so um, it's tough. It was. There was a lot. I mean, for, for people who might be, who might not know, like there was a lot of media coverage at the during the, the peak of the crisis. I think everybody, every news organization was there, um, and there was just this cycle of media coming in. And um, you know, I, I I definitely thought one problem that I think still to this day is, is a problem is like the the issue of like re-traumatizing. Because you know, like you've got. What do you mean? Yeah. It's like it's like having the same people say the same stories about um, you know being yeah. being shot at or having sure. seeing their parents being murdered or the kid being you know killed. Yeah. 
And the fact is, you know, it sounds horrible, but like sometimes these people just make good television to, uh, in the sense that if you, if you know, oh, that, you know, there's, there's that guy who's got this great, like, you know, he's got a gunshot wound here yeah. and he's got this amazing story of coming across with a gunshot wound and surviving. And obviously he wants to tell the story, but if it's like, you know, the fourth or the fifth or the sixth TV crew going in there, um, you know, I, I just wonder what the, how, how to protect that person so that he doesn't become like this, this soundbite machine. And, you know, like, what does it have, what impact does it have on, on his mental health? Like just be, and then, you know, sometimes, you know how it is, like sometimes it, our industry is very cutthroat. Sometimes, you know, especially for freelancers, you know, like you need to go there, you need to get the story or you don't get paid, you know? So they're, you know, they're out there to find that story, do it quickly. And sometimes I, I wish there was a more, like there was a slower way of working in crisis situations, you know, where we're not like doing the package that needs to go out tonight. Mm. Like, so I, I you know, I, I love it. I've done that, that kind of work for CCTV, you know, where we we're like producing packages, you shoot and then you cut. And um, I just feel like it, there's there's two different ways of of working, especially with like documentary. And sometimes, like I would, like they both have their their benefits and in terms of what you're trying to achieve. But I like I feel like perhaps a slower approach with with victims of like really in, intense crimes. Maybe you should we should we should be taking things a bit slower and asking us deeper questions about like why why are we interviewing you yeah i mean it's important to even ask the question the fact that you yeah can take a second to even think and ask the question exactly shows right. that shows that you're a person that that has some emotional intelligence yeah to deal and, with especially and, dealing with these uh people in trouble totally so so another interesting one i guess so off the back of that really harrowing you know Docu like documenting their genocide on their cell phones yeah. was the kind of the title of the, the op dog. Um, off the back of that, though, we launched a, a project that I think has a more of like a positive uh, kind of framework. So, you know, a lot of people that moved in the 2017 like major exodus, like they, um, I think a lot of people. They think that everybody was like really like in super dire poverty and that they're not, you know, they're completely uneducated and stuff like that. Obviously, that does exist in Rohingya communities, and it, you know, illiteracy is a is an issue. But a lot of them are actually quite quite literate, and they've gone, you know, they're quite middle class. They used to have jobs. Some used to hold government positions. Some were studying in schools. And it was only two thousand, uh, I think, two thousand twelve right, when. They were, they were completely banned from attending universities and completely banned from, you know, traveling to schools and stuff like that. So some young Rohingya are actually very, you know, into into social media, for instance. Like they're absolutely glued to Facebook. They're glued to, you know, different like WhatsApp and like chatting apps. Um, so we ran, we launched this program. Um, in 2019, Fortify Rights and Doha Debates, where we basically, we, we found, we basically gave three Rohingya youth cell phones 
and loaded it with Instagram in order for them to document life in the camps themselves, you know, and this was really there to address this problem of like, of, of representation, you know, yeah. in the world media, they all of the themselves. Exactly. So that we, it's not a foreign journalist or a photographer going in there and telling their story for them. It's them themselves being like, no, we know our situation better than anybody. And uh, so what, what we did was like, it was, an, it was amazing. Like we, we had at the beginning it was 15 Rohingya refugees. We, I did this like very basic training and taking photos, like best practices and taking photos with cell phones. So some like very kind of like based like rule of thirds kind of stuff, like how make sure things are focused, a little bit of talking about lighting, um, framing issues using leading lines, that kind of thing. Um, and they they loved it. They they understood it immediately. Um, from them, we selected the three most promising, and um, they were they're amazing. So it's uh, Azimul Hassan, Dilkayas, and Omal Khair. These are three refugees who, you know, they've just taken this platform and they're killing it. They're killing it on Instagram. We launched the first the, from the first so photos awesome. that they were they were posting. We're just like just floored by the creativity, the kind of like the drive, you know, they're really going into, into into places that no foreigner would be allowed. We're talking about like, even when the camps are shut down, like obviously, so some people might not know, like when, um, like you're only allowed to visit camps from certain hours and then they, they lock it down. But they're, you know, they live there so they can actually go in there and see at, at the evenings or like when fires, break out, they can go immediately, they've taken photos of that, they've gone to weddings, they've taken photos of funerals, they've taken photos of all these like aspects of, of daily life that sort of, you know, that humanizes them in a way that we could never do as sort of external people walking, looking in. Yeah. And um, they've gotten, you know, combined now like over the, these three accounts, they've got like over 5,000 followers right now, they've got like, you know, really some some uh, some big time journalists follow them. New York Times photographers are following them. Sometimes they leave like comments I'm like, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" Um, and their their photos are really um, they're they're really powerful. So we we try to we're trying to keep this. Uh, we've been running this now. We're in our second year of the of the media fellow program, and um, you know one. Definitely one issue that we're running into now, since September, you know, the Bangladesh government has made this internet shutdown in, in, the, in the camps. And, uh, you know, they're saying it's actually because of, they're trying to keep, like, protection from human traffickers and from, from drug smugglers. Um, but the, the large effect, especially in this COVID era, is that you know Rohingya are unable to access information that could potentially save them. This is like a it's a health crisis, and right now, to to cut so many people off of like any avenue of information is uh, is pretty is pretty harsh. You know, it's a, it's a very harsh security measure to put. Um, so they're they, they still manage. You know, what they're doing is they're they're kind of going into certain areas of the cabs where network is strong so they have to like walk up a hill sometimes they tap into even like burmese wow. 
internet that yeah. sometimes leaks into the cans. Like yeah. they've got, they understand where there's certain pockets of, of internet. Um, so it's very, um, like they're, they're showing a lot of courage in doing this as well. Um, for sure, for sure. And they're continuing, they're, they're all well, that's awesome. about it. Yeah. I, I was just reading about that, that they were cutting off the uh, 3G and 4G there, right? Yeah, yeah. So now it's a family that's just 2G, Crazy. just to make phone calls. Um, yeah, so hopefully we're you know we're pushing for for a lift on, on this on this band, which is, which is nuts. But yeah, so I'm like I've been um, I've been speaking to them and like going on trips where we I like I'll film with them and you know give a little little tips and tricks. But they're honestly they they're so into Instagram. Like awesome, they're yeah, they're definitely, way definitely. better. They're way better. <laughs> they got way more followers than me. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. Um, you know, so so that's one of the projects I'm really uh, I'm really into at Fortify. Uh, so we're we're gonna continue that. Yeah. So I th- I, w- I want to catch up on something that you said before about like the uh, the power of um, of motion picture and the power of video. Yeah. So what what makes uh to you like what makes a good shot and what makes a good either photo or video what what makes that yeah what makes that shot and what makes that emotion you know i think you know it's it's hard to say like i feel it's a very uh, it's very personal as well in terms of like how what what strikes you but i think at the core you know it has the ability to 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 create empathy, you know, a lot of people say like, you know, the, the the motion picture camera was like humanity creating this like empathy machine, you know, it's there's something about seeing and experiencing something like firsthand, like you do when you're when you're watching a, a piece of film content. Um, so I think I think something that that what makes a good shot, like it's something that makes you truly like walk in your character's shoes or like feels that that you're immersed in that situation. So I think like the pieces of content that immerse me in the story, whether that's through like really good cinematography, like some things where you're using like, you know, like personal things, like even I love tracking shots and something that really like brings me into the story. I like that. Things that this could be also with good sound design. I think I love good sound design that really immediately it brings you there. Something like, ex- like getting excellent room tone or like excellent audio. For sure. It, it's it, it has an immediate impact, and these things are all like, like yeah, exactly. Like things that make you really feel that you're, you're that you're there. Um, I, I, I think that's really really important and technically harder to produce as well. So that's, that's nice. Another thing I think is like, um, yeah, I mean within the news and documentary it like i feel like you need to have something that's that is um that's exclusive and hasn't hasn't been seen before like that's really the what what we're what we're going for now like not not to create rehashed images that keep stereotypes going you know what i mean like things like for instance in a in a refugee situation it would be, it would be like the you know oh he's like completely without any agency and he is so depressed and sad and like all these things that we've seen we've seen enough images of that like well, that, that, that's why i really like the uh, this instagram project you have going on with people in the camps you can see like daily life and you can see a 
yeah a reality and a humanity yeah exactly it's something that like you haven't seen that angle before and yeah i'm, I'm gonna know. i'm gonna put i'm gonna put a link to those instagrams in here i mean those oh are, dude that would be great those are super valuable yeah, for people to check out yeah that would be awesome that'd be awesome um yeah man so what, what about when when you were starting or even now like what who are who were your influences and now what are your influences for yeah for all this stuff? i mean you know what I, I guess what i'm seeing now is i'm seeing a lot of like there, there, there's been a sort of rebirth of like um of interest in, in like documentary films like netflix has been really good in that in that sense like with their serials which are have been great they're very addictive and like it's exciting it's like big time entertainment all of a sudden i'm thinking like you know things like i, I just watched tiger king for instance like things like that or like even before that there's like some really like higher end kind of documentaries that have how, been like how, yeah how, how was how was tiger king i hear everyone have you seen it no everyone, i haven't i saw the first episode but, but I, I didn't continue maybe i, I need to <laughs> it's just it's an insane story it's an insane story with a character that's very strong you know like sure. that's the and they, they really know how to milk that. Um, but, uh, I mean, in terms of, like, I, I really like, um, like, strong visual documentaries, obviously, have in the past been like, oh, this is, this is something where we could, like, really elevate, especially, like, you know, I'm thinking, like, you remember the, have you ever seen Koyani Skatsi, the Koyani Skatsi trilogy and stuff I, I, like that? I think, I th but Baraka was like a, a game Baraka. changer in my whole path of yeah, what I was going to do with my life, actually, when I saw that film. I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Yeah, remember exactly that kind of impact of, like, true visual storytelling. Love that. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big Werner Herzog fan as well. Like, I like that. I thought also, you know, Definitely in the last few years, um, the act of killing and the look of silence by Oppenheimer was also very good in terms of the impact of a documentary, what, what it can have. Also, it was good to see that, you know, films like that, which are really intense. Well, I, I can't remember that one. The act of killing, I think you showed it to me a little the bit act in your of house, but, I, but I, I, I remember you were talking about it a lot. I think we watched oh, part man. of it, but I can't remember too much about it. What was that? Yeah, it was uh, in Indonesia and where it was like the the killing squads, you know, they were, that they had in the um, 70s. And like this guy, he sort of like, he was, he, he was, re he was doing re a, a documentary about the killing squads reenacting their killings. Because they were all into like Hollywood films at the time, so they were. It was like a film about a film. Right, 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 right. And uh, just to see like like the cathartic process of like actually being reenacting murders that you've done, and he was like, because they think they're heroes really in Indonesia. Um, but anyway, the way the way it was made is it's a brilliant film, very hard to watch, but it you know it, it got an audience. Um, man, so many, like even, dude, like even before, I, I was remember when I, I was thinking about really like pursuing documentary film and seeing where it could go, like it's, like early projects, I'm thinking even like um, this guy, Ziga Vertov, like this is the 20s, it's called, the man with man with a movie camera. It's sort of like one of those things, like I feel like when we've, like when I watch it, I'm like, wow, this is like, when, since the birth of cinema, People have thought about like the effect it can have on society's factual stories, seen and like 
the role of the filmmaker within society, what it can have, how much power you can have with a camera and like stuff like that. It's really been, um, it's been good. I love, I mean, I love current affairs documentaries. I love uh, more artsy documentaries. I love, I mean, I watch, I try to watch what, you know, quite a bit, but like I also try and keep sort of like watching like fiction films to relax and stuff like that so that I can concentrate my work on like, in terms of like being fresh with my, my own documentary, so yeah. I try to do that as well. Nice. Yeah, man. There's, I'm sure there's so you, many. You, you saw that they're making this new uh, Dune film? Yeah, dude. Yeah, I saw. I saw. I That's saw. by the same uh, director of uh, The Arrival. Oh, yeah. So that, that I think that's going to be pretty freaking awesome in terms of a fiction cool, film. Man. Yeah, dude. That's going to be cool. Because um, um, David Lynch made a version, I think. I know, but I couldn't. I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't. I don't want to say anything bad. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I could. I could not get into that one so much. Yeah, yeah, But that's just me. Um, dude, um, when you were talking about like the the role and the power of a filmmaker, I mean, I was thinking about actually now that it's it's almost uh, you know in the 1920s it was even more expensive than it is now. Yeah. It was a very like elite level. And now that has been democratized throughout the world, pretty much. Filmmaker, anybody can make a film. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's in, it's incredibly exciting, and um, I feel like you know, especially seeing it go from you know, even at the days of mini DV and stuff like that, like it was it was expensive and like people didn't have editing equipment, and we were talking like like ten years ago, and then. I just saw it. There was a moment there. I think it was definitely the DSLRs when when they started doing video on DSLRs, like where every photographer became a, a filmmaker, and yeah. like it, it was just sort of like it was almost assumed. Then I feel like that everybody was like expecting people to deliver both. So multimedia journalists were like, "Oh yeah, you got to do both. You got to do video." And I still to this day, I'm like, "Well, I still think." That they are two different art forms and that require two different people. And yeah. when you can, just hire two people because, yeah. like, you know, I, I'm sure we've talked about this. It's like you both things suffer if you're gonna try and exactly. like you're gonna you're gonna get shittier qualities of both. And like they're both gonna be bad if you're trying to do both. Yeah, I mean, it's like it, people assume, especially those who haven't, you know, really pursued one or the other. That oh it's the same you know just like why don't you just you know take a snap it but it's like because when you're filming it the language is different like every shot exists in relationship to the shot that comes before it and after it you're filming things in sequence when you're doing like video or, or filmmaking whereas it's a completely different thing to just sort of like be shooting for that single moment right it's you have to you have to be you have to be dealing with people differently you have to have like different setup you have to have a different plan and um it just doesn't work where it's like oh just you know just take a snap like you it doesn't it doesn't like i think differently by the way i think about images i think and like the way you have to think about images is different like um so but yeah so then what basically it's democratized like now honestly like i'm seeing like there was that famous case of the I think it was called Tangerine, right? There's a film in Sundance which was shot entirely with with a cell phone, with an iPhone. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. It was like, it's insane. Um, 
and uh, I think they, like there's huge, huge amounts of uh, like creative possibilities there. Um, I I still think there's always going to be a role for like a professional like videographer or you know DP or stuff like that. Um, but it's in terms of the, like the the output and like it's it's just it's it's awesome. I'm I'm really excited about that possibility. But getting people who are have never been represented and they're making making films, I think it's great. Sure. Like coming off that and like the democratizing of filmmaking, like what are you excited for for the future and where is all of this going? You know, I'm just I'm excited that uh, that documentary film is finally like it feels like it's something that's genu genuinely like mass entertainment with uh, with Netflix and and these like online platforms like people are flocking to them and um, they're being produced in a sort of like a larger aesthetic and as well like there and I feel like there's there's going to be more of that coming. Um, I feel like underreported stories are also going to be more um, more visible. More people will be making them and spending money on them. Hopefully, <laughs> um, I feel like the best thing you know the best thing about filmmaking, though, honestly, is like and, and from a filmmaker's perspective, is really like interacting with real world stories out in the real world. You know, and, and going to places that otherwise people would would never would never go to. And like experiencing that reality, I think it's it's one of the one of the like the biggest joys of, of being a documentary filmmaker. Like going, I, I would have never gone to you know like an opium field in Myanmar otherwise. Like and then to speak to people from a very human perspective, and they're interested in you, you're interested in them, and you connect with people you would never have the opportunity yeah. to. Yeah. I think that's like the best thing about documentary filmmaking in a way that even fiction filmmakers don't have that. Like it's awesome to work with actors for sure, but you know, being able to go into like these situations is like, it's, uh, it's great. So what, what was your, I mean, maybe you already answered it with like the opium films, but what was, what's your like, mm -hmm. out of all the stories you've done, all the places you've been, what is like the one that you come to if you were to be asked like, what's the, Oh, the most impressive place or the one that's had the most lasting impression on you? Wow, there's been so many. Um, so some, some, good, some good Thailand ones are uh, doing the shoot. Oh, I mean, like, it's kind of a rite of passage for, for like, journals working here. I'm sure you've done it, too. The, the tattoo temple where people, you see thousands of people at a Buddhist, uh, like, uh, at a temple. And they are they enter a state of trance and they become animals and they charge the the front of the temple and it's something that's just incredible to see like the when they go into full on like crazy mode and um, and seeing them really get into a state of trance because of the magical power of the Sakyan tattoos that they have it's incredible uh, I, I, it was one of the best days of filming there. And then also, like, I did a documentary about um, this uh, prison. Uh, in, in the Thai prisons, there's a boxing championship between inmates and that you can actually win your freedom. So, I would, you know, we went in into Thai. Yeah, talk Thai. about that. What is, what, oh. what is that? To tell people who have not oh. heard about Klong Prem, Klong yes. Prem Prison, what that is. It's just incredible. It's like, so it's one of the hardest prison systems in the world there's 
really criminals there who are there, you know, on death row. And like they're crammed into terrible living situation where they're just sleeping together, like six or eight people in a small cell um, on the floor, toilets there. It's just, it's hard. And um, within this network of, of prisons and within Kong Prem as well, there's this boxing championship, inter prison boxing championship. And if you're, some of these guys train, that's all they do, they just train incredibly hard. Some of the best Muay Thai fighters in the world have come out of this training program. And it's a, it's a rehabilitation program. I, I, like, I think all prisons should have this because they're so dedicated. And there's also like a mental training and a cleansing that you need to do to reach that kind of athletic success. And so we filmed this guy, M, who was like, you know, but the, so, so they're training for what? what? What are they training for? They're training to win a Muay Thai championship with, and then become the best fighter. And then once they once they do that, you get you can get a pardon if you be, if you win and you're the the champion. And if you're that good, usually you get out and uh, you go straight into becoming a professional. And uh, so this is what this guy did that we followed, and I filmed him leaving prison. And it was like the day he's walking out a free man after like eight years, I think it was, that he's been inside prison. And, uh, you know, the craziest thing was like that I feel like he was actually genuinely, he was very nervous and kind of scared of the outside world. Because then like that became his home. That's where he has relationships and like in terms of like friendships and that's where he was training. And so it was a mixture. Like I was expecting... Maybe, I don't know, like, maybe since foolishly I was thinking he would be happy, but he was sort of like really apprehensive. He was like, oh shit, okay, cool. It's like, it's time. We'll face the real world and walk out. But he was obviously after, you know, he was also happy. And um, I was extremely happy for him. And it was, a, it was a good day. That was a good day. But there's so many, man. I could go like. <laughs> I know. And I'll I just tell you, well, of... I, I, I didn't realize, but this, this could really go on for a while, <laughs> <laughs> which is good, which is good. Um, Okay, man. I, how about I just want to? I'll, I'll leave it off with, um, you know, if you could give one piece of advice for somebody just starting out, and maybe it's similar to the one piece of advice you would give yourself when you were just starting out. What would that be? I would be, you know, like take every work experience. I would say um, in like in stride. You know, perhaps you're doing something that you're not necessarily like a hundred percent happy with, but take it as experience, especially when you when you're starting out. Like, I feel like, you know, if, or at least somebody told me, you know, like, it's, it's if somebody had told me, like, to kind of just, just don't, don't be so self-critical of being like, oh, you know, this, this is not exactly what I want to be doing or this is not fulfilling my creative vision. It's like, you have time for that. Like, what, what you're trying to do is build a career and that takes time. You're not gonna be like making feature documentaries right out of the gate. If you are good, like more power to you. But the, the reality is that it, there is a lot of like heavy lifting in this, in this industry, in this work, you know? And if you're doing like, if, you know, especially if you're freelancing and you're like, you know, you're hired to be an editor on whatever, some project or, you know, you perhaps like doing some like shooting something or other that don't 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 feel like any work is beneath you 
just you awesome. know for sure that's like a, that's my advice for young young filmmakers that's yeah amazing. cool awesome nice one man okay brother this is really good, good. okay, okay. <laughs> Tamor Salban. <laughs>